search on the web at wagp.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. As always, we welcome you to the Bible line. If you're new, this is an hour-long program where we discuss the only book God ever wrote. We call it the Holy Bible. And if you have a specific question in your study of Scripture or an issue that you're facing in your life that you'd like biblical counsel on, all you need to do is pick up the phone. You can call us directly at 843-525-1859. We have a toll-free number for our Internet listeners. We live stream here on the Internet. And people uh, can hear us anywhere in the world. And the toll-free number in the United States is 877-WAGP-980. Or, as many people do, you can email us directly here into the studio. And the email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at net. Rick, as always, it's great to be here today. It is indeed, Pastor. And uh, tell you what, we've got a number of questions, so let's get to them right now. This one's rather timely. Suzanne from St. Helena Island asks, I took the 128 questionnaire on um, how to discern one's spiritual gifts. Uh, Besides service and helps, which makes sense given my personality, uh, the other with the most points was exhortation. And this one took me by surprise, and now I'm very curious about what it is exactly and how to approach the using of this particular gift correctly. Well, uh, Suzanne, since she lives right here in Beaufort County, might be interested to know that beginning tomorrow night, we begin a 10-week course called Unwrapping Your Spiritual Gift. We will look at a very detailed explanation from God's Word, first on the theology of gifts. Uh, What are the spiritual gifts? How are they different from natural talents or acquired skills? Uh, We'll talk about how to discover our spiritual gift. How do you know what your spiritual gift may be? And she mentions here the 128-question inventory. It's a spiritual gifts test that I wrote that is on our website at searchthescriptures.org. We will encourage people who are going to take the course to go online and to take that. Uh, It can be an initial indication of where your gift may lie if you... uh, answer the questions truthfully. Uh, Sometimes Christians will answer the questions as they would like that to be, not as it really is. But if you will go on and just be secure that God has a purpose and a plan for your life, that none of us are unimportant, 
that no gift is more important than another and answer it honestly and straightforth, it could be a good starting indicator. So we'll talk about uh, three or four different ways that might help you to discover what your spiritual gift is. There is an assumption in the New Testament that you can know what your spiritual gift is. But beyond that, we're also going to speak about the development of our spiritual gift. It's one thing to know what your gift is. It's quite another thing to use it and to be a good steward of it. We'll talk about abuses of spiritual gifts. How are uh, spiritual gifts often abused in the body of Christ? We'll talk about the sign gifts like tongues, interpretation of tongues, miracles, and healing, and uh, some of the issues that are associated with that. But just to give you the short answer, the gift of exhortation or encouragement, depending on your translation, is that gift that encourages God's people either through rebuke or correction or just through pure, what we would call in English today, encouragement. The word that's used in the Greek New Testament is not exclusive just to telling people. uh, We often use the word encouragement in terms of, you know, real positive feedback. Um, the, The gift can have some... Uh, negative kind of connotations in there in its expression, but again, exercising it in a spirit filled fashion is what 's critical and uh, again we 'll discuss the abuses of spiritual gifts, and one abuse is for a person to use their spiritual gift in the energy of the flesh rather than exercising it in the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's a great question, and um, come to the 10-week course. It will be posted online. If you can't come on Wednesday nights, those um, messages are put up. How soon up after the Wednesday night service are messages put on our website? Oh, within 24 to 36 hours. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. And they're live. You can watch it on live stream, or you can just download the audio portion into your iPod or whatever phone or whatever you're using. Very good. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us, as this individual has, to tbl at net. Um, he writes, I visited a church today while visiting a family in South Dakota, and this church is Baptist and part of the Baptist General Conference. From what I understand, the Baptist General Conference was started in Minnesota by people from Sweden who left the state church in Sweden to follow the teachings of the Bible. The preaching seemed very solid at first impression, as does their doctrinal statement and salvation message. They would appear to be very similar to the Southern Baptist Convention, though they are not part of it or from it. I talked to the youth pastor who's leaving in a few weeks to be senior pastor of an evangelical free church in Iowa, and he said they believe in the literal Genesis and Noah's flood stories in addition to the doctrinal statement saying they believe in the full inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible. He said the Baptist General Conference statement of faith is very similar to the Southern Baptist Convention, but I'm not sure what the differences are or how much they matter. I forgot to ask what their position is on women preacher teachers. They have a magazine called Convergence or something like that, that they have a lady on the back of it of a conference who's credited as a Bible expositor. The uh, The lady is Dr. Tony Evans' daughter, Priscilla Shire, so I assume she's not a woman preacher like Anne Graham Lotz. Can you comment on the Baptist General Conference of the Upper Midwest? I know you've commented a lot on the Southern Baptist Convention and its offshoots like Independence, uh, Cooperative Baptist, etc. But the Baptist General Conference of Minnesota, South Dakota, Iowa area is not to be confused with any Southern Baptist churches, apparently. I'm assuming they're independent churches like the SBC churches and are supposed to be independent. I also heard about German Baptists for the first time at this church, uh, so I looked it up. 
in this area, there are some German Baptist churches, and their seminary is Sioux Falls Seminary. They're now called North American Baptist. Anyway, um, let's start. Just with comment that. on that, yeah. if you would. Well, um, the Baptist General Convention, like the Evangelical Free Denomination, were formed by uh, Swedish evangelicals who ended up moving into the farm belt of the United States. So both have a, a rich history and a good solid start. The, the one group um, branched out into what we, today we call the Evangelical Free Church, uh, Trinity Seminary in Deerfield, Illinois, would be representative of this denomination's seminary. It's a it's a good solid evangelical seminary uh, overall. You know they've produced a lot of good solid pastors. Probably the most famous would be Chuck Swindoll, who for many years pastored the Fullerton Free Evangelical Church. Uh, the Independent um, Baptist Church. Uh, movement that you mentioned here is not to be confused with Southern Baptists. They didn't branch out of Southern Baptists. Uh, Cooperative Baptists did. But the Baptist General Conference has had overall a conservative history. Probably one of its more famous pastors would be uh, John Piper. He's, uh, his church, Bethlehem Baptist, would be in that group. Uh, the churches are autonomous, like um, Southern Baptists and certainly Independent Baptists. And what that basically means is that no one outside of the local church structure tells that church how to believe, what to do with their funds, um, the missions efforts that they should be involved in. They make those decisions autonomously, that there's not a hierarchical structure above the local church. And I do believe that's the biblical pattern that there is not a hierarchy above the local church. There, the only hierarchy that ever existed in the early church was that of the apostles. And that's because they were a unique group of men that were personally chosen by Christ, had seen him in his resurrected body. And if those first things were true, then it would be authenticated with signs, wonders, and miracles, as Second Corinthians twelve twelve teaches. But uh, apart from the apostles, there was no structure above the local church. And what's interesting, too, is as you study the book of Acts is to see how the apostles were trying to give responsibility to the local church because they knew there would come a day when they would be, of course, gone and off the scene. Um, I would say that the, uh, you know, the General Baptist Convention, like a lot of denominations, have uh, faced some issues that they need to decide upon in terms of the application of biblical truth. They've come out strongly against homosexuality, for which I'm thankful. They've not denied biblical inerrancy. Uh, Some would say, and you be the judge of this, that they've wavered on the egalitarian versus complementarian issues. Uh, what we mean by that, if those are terms that are new to you, egalitarianism says that men and women are equal not only in their status before God, but the role that they can play before God. Where complementarianism says, well, men and women are equal in their status before God, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they have the same role. And there are usually three institutions where these issues arise, uh, the home, the church, and government. And you will find people who are complementarian in all three, some who are complementarian in one and not in another. So, for instance, you'll, you'll meet some people who will say, well, yes, in the home, the husband is the head. 
uh, that God has given male leadership to the local home, but not necessarily to the local church. And they would say in the local church, women could be pastors and so forth. And so the fact, and again, I'm just commenting here on what you've written. As you've sent the question in, I've not uh, researched this personally to make sure it is accurate. But if what you're saying is true, that Tony Evans' daughter is, um, you know, a speaker at their conferences, I would say that she would fall into the egalitarian camp. Uh, She's more of a Christian feminist. Now, I love Tony Evans. He's not. He's complementarian. Um, That's why we play him here on this station. But if he ever changed and changed his theology, obviously um, he loves his daughter. What can he say? But his daughter is egalitarian in practice, so she will speak in mixed audiences. And really, I think what's unfortunate is more often than not, she is creating a model for young mothers that is unhealthy. When you give the um, supervision of your children to others so that you can travel the country and speak, uh, that's not a healthy model. And I think it's an unbiblical picture of what women's ministry should really look like. So again, what's happening, and Southern Baptists have fought this too. Now you've got guys like Al Mohler who says, listen, Beth Beth Moore is not going to step on this campus and preach out of this pulpit. Uh, because she is egalitarian and beyond egalitarian. And, you know, I, 15 years ago, some women in our church asked if we could use Beth Moore's material, and I said no. Um, and the elder board stood behind me in that decision uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one is I, I thought some of her material was not well done. Some of it was shaky. Um, it was just uninformed. And I thought, where, where's she getting her information from? She was calling Greek words, Hebrew words, Hebrew words, Greek words. And I thought, well, she doesn't have much foundation. And if you're going to reference the original languages, at least do it accurately. Um, but beyond that, I felt like the model that she was creating for women's ministry was not a biblical model, that she was basically emulating what God has called men to do in the local assembly and not really spearheading what God has called women to do. And so beyond that, I saw that the, the sense of what I was picking up back then in those years, in um, we had come out of Texas, so we, we knew of her. We first began to hear of her in the 80s. Um, I, I knew the guy that basically personally discipled him, or discipled her, um, which is, you know, again, a questionable issue, whether that kind of arrangement should even take place. He's dead now, but um, in either case, he died very young. He was a friend of mine. Uh, but I, I saw some things that I didn't really appreciate. So she would make statements like, well, you know, it's okay for me to preach here at Second, at First Baptist Church of Houston, Texas, because I'm under my pastor's authority. And I'm not usurping his authority. He has given me permission to preach to this mixed audience. Well, listen, a pastor cannot give any woman authority that God forbids. Now, he may say, well, she may say I'm under his authority, but that pastor has no authority to tell a woman to do something that God expressly says that she should not do. And then she began to come out with statements about... Well, you know, God said to me, thus saith the Lord kind of statements. 
And again, I, I know that a man plans his ways. God can direct our steps, that God can impress us and lead us. But to put, um, to put our statements in the first person, like thus saith the Lord, like people like Sarah Young has done. And if you've not read my critique on her book, it's a very, very dangerous book. And what's happened today is so many people in the body of Christ are so untaught that the issues that I'm even raising here wouldn't even have been issues amongst evangelicals 25 years ago. Uh, But they are today because we have put experience and feeling uh, above biblical theology. So to me, uh, that's dangerous. And, and so you've got churches and denominations that are dealing with this, you know, Lifeway Books, which is basically the Southern Baptist printing arm, you know, has promoted Beth Moore because she sells and she makes money. But she's really against the theology of the Southern Baptist Church and its leadership. But again, churches are autonomous Seminary boards are set up all by themselves, and people can make decisions that uh, aren't regulated by the denomination. And so those are the kinds of things that you get into. And that's why you had the Independent Baptist Church Movement, because they didn't want to face those kinds of issues. And so they're kind of a, a movement all of, them, uh, all of their own. So anyway, there's a, so much more I could say, but we've got like 25 questions that have come in. So we're just going to go to the next question. But if you do have a question and you'd like to go on the air live, uh, you can call us locally, 525-1859. All right. Our next question uh, was emailed to us. Uh, this person writes, a while back, I heard you talk about uh, cremation being unbiblical. I agree with you. I was trying to explain this to some family members that think that there's nothing wrong with it. They said ashes to ashes and dust to dust. The important part is the heart, which it is, and that it does not matter about the body then. We are out of it then. What do you think on this matter? Would you please explain why you think it is unbiblical and please give scripture reference you might have? Well, again, uh, the bottom line that your relatives uh, mentioned is, is correct in that eventually if you give a body enough time, it's going to rot and decay and, and turn to dust. Uh, A lot depends, too, on how the body is uh, buried and the technique that is used. Uh, Some cultures, as time progressed, got more involved in a more sophisticated methodology in terms of how to deal with the body. But in Jewish culture, to this day, they do not embalm, uh, at least uh, in Israel. Or there are certainly Jewish people who are Americans who do that, but Jewish people as a whole do not embalm. If if I died today and I was a Jew living in Israel, I'd be in the grave. If I died in the morning, I would be in the grave either by this evening or by tomorrow morning. That's just the way the Jewish people have handled the body. Now, they have put spices on bodies. And of course, uh, the classic example that we all know and think of is the Lord Jesus himself, who is basically spiced like a king would be with over a hundred pounds of uh, Alos and myrrh. Um, and again, that was done, you know, in those days to uh, deal with odor that could uh, protrude from a cave where the body was uh, laid. Uh, just like if you walk by uh, some dead animal in your backyard or on your street and you can be 10, 15 feet away. And if you hit it right, it can be quite obnoxious. 
So with that said, the bottom line is true uh, that in the end we're dust, and it is true that we get a resurrected body. Uh, God will raise up the old body wherever it is, whether it was put in a cremation oven at you know however, however many thousands of degrees they put it at, or whether it was uh, destroyed in a fire, or whether it was eaten by the fish at sea, or the squirrels ate your bones out in the woods. It doesn't matter. God will find that body and raise it up into a resurrected body. The question becomes methodology in terms of how to deal with the body. Um, In the Old Testament, the heathen would typically burn the body alive. And so in Jewish theology, the burning of the body was associated with a heathen practice. So number one, and you can find some examples in like 2 Kings 16, where the thought was just abhorrent uh, to them. Uh, Burning the body was a picture of God's judgment, if you read um, Numbers 11. Uh, And so, again, for this reason, Old Testament saints would never even consider practicing cremation. What do they practice? There are many things that we have in the Bible that are not necessarily given by command, but are given by example. For instance, there's not a command to have deacons. There is an assumption that a local church will have deacons, but there's not a command. There are qualifications for deacons given in the New Testament, but there's not a command. And so there are some things we do in the local assembly by the example of the local church. There's um, uh, a number of practices that we could consider. And so when you look at the Old Testament, you see that all of God's men were always buried, whether it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they were all buried without exception. Um, You come into the New Testament, John the Baptist, when he dies, his death is recorded in Mark 6, he's buried. Uh, Lazarus in John 11, when he dies, he's buried. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira, they were disobedient believers, but nonetheless believers, Acts 5, when they die, they are buried. The Lord Jesus himself was buried. Um, and when God does a funeral service, as it's recorded in Deuteronomy 34, uh, he, the Lord, buried Moses. So my, if you don't have a, a picture of what we ought to do, ask yourself, what did, what did Yahweh do? God himself buried Moses. And again, in 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul assumes that God's people will practice burial. Why? Well, he tells us that it's likened to a seed planted in the ground. Just like you put a seed in the dirt in an act of expectancy, you expect something to sprout out of what appears to be dead. Paul says, well, the same is true for us as believers. When we put our loved ones in the ground, we do it with the expectancy that God is going to raise that body up in a in the twinkling of an eye. And so you get that great explanation in the great resurrection chapter of the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, Cremation was not practiced in this country until the 1870s by the Unitarians. And the reason the Unitarians did it, and Unitarian theology basically progressed over time. So what some early Unitarians believed and what some later Unitarians believed and what Unitarians today believed changed with time. But by the 1870s, the Unitarians were considered hardcore liberals. 
all the major tenets of historical Christianity were denied, whether it was the deity of Christ or the doctrine of the Trinity or the infallibility of the word of God or or the eternality of the soul. They were more like the Sadducees who didn't believe in life after death, who didn't believe in angels, who didn't believe in the uh, bodily resurrection. And so in defiance of the doctrine of the resurrection, uh, Unitarians said, we're going to burn our bodies. And so again, it was abhorrent to any believer to um, even consider uh, ever burning the body. With time, the church has gotten away from the Bible. Most people don't know what God says any longer. And so, you know, cremation, Christians practice it as much as pagans do in our culture. It's not even an issue. But I will say, too, on a very practical level, that when I, as a pastor, do a funeral, and I teach the standard in our church, uh, understand that sometimes I will do funerals where, you know, uh, I'm dealing with some person who's not even a member of our church. And sometimes, on occasion, a member will practice cremation, and they're free to do so. And, you know, I'm not going to not do their funeral over it. But I guarantee this, their funeral has lost a lot of punch. Listen, your funeral, if it's done by a Bible-believing pastor, is an opportunity. Uh, How many times does your family, everybody, all your relatives, all your friends get together? Well, maybe at Christmas or certain holidays or occasionally on birthdays or and if your if your family spread out across the nation as so many families are in the day that we live in maybe just at weddings and funerals and so your funeral if you have a bible believing pastor doing it is an opportunity to win some of those family members and friends who do not know Christ and with your body there rather than just some picture or some urn it has so much more punch and power that I believe the Spirit of God can use. You know, under communism, I just came from the Ukraine, and for 70 years they were under communism, and I'm, you know, always meeting believers who suffered greatly under those years, who were imprisoned, and uh, and their ability to preach the gospel was greatly restricted unless uh, there was persecution associated with it. So they had to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves because they wanted to survive as long as they could. But when they would do a funeral, in fact, they still practice it to this day. It's a general practice in that country. You don't go to a funeral home. Uh, You don't even have your funeral done in the church. Uh, You usually have the um, setting up, as they used to call it in the South, uh, where the body is displayed in the home, and your funeral is done in that apartment complex or in that village or outside your front door and your friends and your neighbors come. And under communism, that was one of the few opportunities where Christians could publicly share their faith without finding harassment from the local authorities. And the reason was, is I guess even in the communist heart, as hard as it may have been, there was a certain amount of compassion that they would express when someone had lost a a loved one. But my point in that is there is real opportunity, and there is to this day, when uh, the dead body is there. The only ones they ever do a funeral for in a church is if you're a pastor. Only pastors get buried in the church in terms of hold the funeral. Everybody else, it's done out in the public. And, uh, And it's an opportunity to win people to the Lord Jesus. And I hope your funeral will be too. So if you want to ask me, what the biblical pattern is, it's very clear. The biblical pattern is not to practice cremation 
or a more current practice, rumination, where they take your body, and it's legal, I think, in six or eight states in the U.S., and it's practiced in much of Western Europe now, where they take your body and they boil it at like 3,000 degrees in a certain acid mixture until it's dissolved into water. Um, And when it's all done, the acid is neutralized, and you can even water your plants with it. So, uh, but is that a good practice? No, I don't think so. Uh, God gave us a pattern. And the pattern in Scripture is to bury those whom you've loved, uh, who, who you've lost, whom hopefully you love. So anyway, mm-hmm. I hope that helps. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980. And uh, email us at tbl at net. as has this listener. He writes, if our politicians are successful in creating a national gun ban, how should the Christian respond? If it becomes the law of the land, should we obey it? Sure, of course. Um, You know, there are many countries of the world where uh, you're not allowed to own a gun. Uh, Again, the country I just came from. uh, That's true with most, if not all, of the Eastern Bloc countries. You can't own a gun. Uh, Now, if you are a high official, you might be able to get a gun permit to go hunting And even that is greatly regulated and intensely restricted. But you cannot personally own a gun. Uh, That's not a um, mandated God-given right. What is a God-given right is to protect yourself. And so if I lived in a country where it was against the law to own a gun, and that's not true of our country, thank God. But if I did, and someone tried to break in my home, and it was dark and I couldn't tell or it was light, and I could tell that my life or one of my loved ones were being threatened, and to protect myself, I ended up taking that person's life. God says it's not murder. It's not um, a a sanctioned sin as such. Uh, That's okay. So what is allowed by God is the protection of human life and defending your life and defending the life of other innocent people. But there's nothing in the Bible that guarantees, of course, that we could have a gun. Guns obviously didn't exist when the scriptures were were, were written. And the bi- biblical principle is, is that we must obey God rather than men unless, um, you know, there's something in man's law that in no way violates God's law. There's, there's nothing in man's law that if man says you can't own a gun and that becomes the law of the land— where um, well, I must obey God rather than men, and God says I should. No, there's nothing in God's law that says that. Now, am I in favor of gun ownership? Yes. You don't want to break into my house, I promise you. Uh, but listen, um, and, am I in favor of defending uh, the Second Amendment? Yes, I am. Uh, do I think that the problem is uh, guns? Not really. I think the problem is, the, is an issue of the heart. Now, I think uh, there might be some reasonable gun laws. You know, I don't want some mentally ill guy uh, getting a hold of a gun any quicker than he has to. Uh, It is true. I've been to gun shows and uh, actually only one, but I went to a gun show in Columbia and you don't need anything and you can buy anything and it's pretty simple. And boy, you can get just about any imaginable gun you can think of in most states. Uh, you know, uh, would I like to see some restrictions? I could see some wisdom, you know, in some places like that. And as soon as I say that, I make some people mad. But 
the problem is not guns. The problem is a problem of the heart. And criminals are going to get guns. But I think you could maybe slow it down with some mentally ill people. And they're hard to classify. Um, even this uh, latest shooting, the kid got the guns from his mom. His mom was a gun owner. So it's almost impossible to to, to control just by legally regulating it. Um, if anything, those uh, principles in administrators should have had some guns and had been trained in them because it sounds like if they did, they would have had some time because they wouldn't open the door in that Connecticut school. So the kid, I broke out the window. I don't know if he shot it out or how, how he did it, but uh, with all the noise and issues that went on, if they were armed, uh, maybe a lot could have, uh, could have been stopped. But this idea of a gun-free zone is uh, not a good thing. So, you know, even in the church I pastor, we have a lot of people who uh, are in our security team who are armed and ready if some smart guy wants to come in. Uh, they don't want to come into this church. Anyway, um, let's go to the next question. I appreciate it. If you have a question or comment, the number again locally is 525-1859, area code 843. All righty. How does the Bible interpret, and what are your thoughts on the Scripture in 1 Timothy 3.12? Does this mean a man, deacon, should be married to one wife at one time, or one wife for all time to qualify as a deacon? Well, when he says the husband of one wife, and the qualification is given for both elders and deacons in, in 1 Timothy 3, um, there have been six interpretations historically. Uh, some more recent than others, but six historically. Uh, the Roman Catholic view, when it says the husband of one wife, well, obviously they practice celibacy, so how do they deal that, with that? Well, they spiritualize it. It's the only way they can deal with it. So they say that the priest or the bishop or the cardinal or even the pope, he's married to the church. And the children that are mentioned in the text, his children must be believers or under control, um, they would say, well, that's to be his goal towards the congregants that he's called to pastor. Uh, listen, that approach to interpreting the Scripture can make the Word of God mean anything you want it to be. You cannot um, spiritualize the Scripture. Uh, you, you cannot um, use that principle for interpreting God's Word and be faithful to God's Word. Um, there are times in the Word of God when symbols are used, but those symbols are interpreted for us. They're defined for us. Uh, There's a couple of allegories in the Bible, like in Galatians 4, but we don't allegorize the Scripture in its interpretation. St. Augustine was famous for doing this, and again, it's a very dangerous approach, and God contained within his word principles for interpreting his word. So when you see, say, the Lord Jesus interfacing with the Old Testament Scripture or the apostles interfacing with the Old Testament Scripture or Daniel, say, interfacing with Jeremiah's prophecy, um, you find them uh, literally interpreting the text, that it's done in the historical grammatical context. Um, So, one, I throw that interpretation out immediately. Uh, the question you ask, could it mean like one wife at a time, that this is a prohibition against bigamy or polygamy? 
I, I certainly do not think so by any stretch. And, I, and when I say I don't think so, I'm not saying like, well, maybe it could. I mean, it doesn't. Even under Roman law, uh, bigamy and polygamy was prohibited, as it is right now in our nation. Now, this may change in our nation. If someone says, well, listen, what I am is I am a homosexual, and so I ought to have freedom to practice my homosexuality. Listen, what you are is not homosexual. That's what you do. Um, and there are people who are arguing what I am is I'm a bigamist. I'm a polygamist. That's the way God made me. Or really, did he also make you a pedophile? And did he, did he make you to practice bestiality? These are moral issues. These are not uh, minority status issues as people want to make them in our day. And so he's not saying, well, if you have two wives, you can't be a deacon. Or if you have three or more wives, you can't be a pastor. Uh, this is not, uh, it doesn't mean one woman at a time. Listen, if a person had two or more wives, they would not be uh, a candidate for uh, the office of elder or deacon. They'd be a candidate for church discipline under the new covenant. Now, it is true that under the old covenant, some things were allowed because of the hardness of heart. But under the new covenant, such a person wouldn't even be considered a believer. So I don't think it's a, uh, that the idea of being married to the church or one woman at a time is what's in view. Some people say this is a prohibition against single men from serving in the office of elder or deacon. Uh, because they would say, well, it assumes he's married and it assumes he has children. Well, I do think that you would expect the New Testament to come from that approach because normally in the Word of God, it's assumed that most people will get married. As God establishes the uh, foundations for marriage, he assumes a man will leave father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone will get married. But God paints the general parameters because most people in this life will get married. But there's exceptions to that. 1 Corinthians 7 deals with this. Paul talks about, I wish all men were like I. And he talks about, but to one, one gift is given, and to another, another gift is given. Uh, And and by the way, we'll deal with this in our course on spiritual gifts that celibacy is not a spiritual gift. It's not something so much that God does through you as he does to you. And there are people in the history of the church that God has chosen to set apart in a special way to keep single their whole life. Uh, One just went home to heaven last year, John R.W. Stott. Uh, He died, I think he was 88 or 90, somewhere in there. And he was single his whole life, was a prolific writer, produced so many books that were of great help uh, to the body of Christ. And one of the reasons he was able to to do so is because he was single. He had time to do that. God had given him another set of priorities that a married man with children or grandchildren doesn't necessarily have. So with that said, um, I don't think that single men are disqualified. Why? Well, because Paul was single and he was an elder. You say he was an apostle. He was an apostle, but he was more than an apostle. He was an elder. All elders are not apostles. There's just a limited number of apostles that are given to us in the New Testament, but all apostles are elders. So Peter can write in 1 Peter 5, he speaks to, his, uh, to the elders of the, uh, the, to the diaspora and the elders in those various churches that he's writing. He calls himself 
a fellow elder. They were pastors. In fact, you have guys like the Apostle John who pastored a church, um, and they could do that. But not all elders are obviously apostles. So are you telling me that the Apostle Paul, because he was single, was disqualified? I don't think so. And certainly the chief elder, the chief pastor, the Lord Jesus was not disqualified. He was never married, contrary to the books that have been written in recent years. Uh, So I don't think it's a prohibition against a single person. Some would say that this is a prohibition against a remarried uh, widower. That if I was married and I, my wife died and I married again, that I would no longer be the husband of one wife. Uh, I don't think that's really what's in view because, number one, the reverse statement is given. The Greek text literally says a one-woman man. Uh, in the, later on in the same letter in 1 Timothy 5, he speaks of a one-man woman when he speaks of widows who should be considered for the honor list within the local church. And yet Paul encourages younger widows to remarry. Uh, Why? Well, because he knows that uh, that's a good thing. And that's how God has designed life. And I don't think he does so so that they can later be excluded from the honor list. Uh, that might be given to a certain widow in the church. Not all widows qualify, but certain widows do, and God gives the qualifications for that. And I have a whole sermon on that if you're interested in studying it from 1 Timothy chapter 5. So I don't think that is in view. Uh, some would say, well, he's a one-woman one kind of man in his heart, a non-flirtatious kind of person. That's covered under self-control. Paul's not repeating himself. Uh, the historical interpretation of the verse, of verse almost exclusively for 1,900 years is this was a prohibition against a divorced person serving in the office of elder or deacon. Not because divorced people aren't forgiven, not because they're second-class citizens. It was a protective measure in the church, just like capital punishment is a protective measure against murder. When capital punishment is properly Uh, executed and under the guidelines given in Holy Scripture, it's very effective. And England did this for a long time, quite effectively. And so until 1961, the English uh, endorsed capital punishment, and they did it in a proper way. Unfortunately, we live in a day when it's not properly executed, and so it becomes, uh, becomes meaningless. Um, and that's unfortunate because God gives some specific guidelines. You know, if a man commits murder in 1978 and he's executed in 2010, um, that's not an effective use of capital punishment. In the book of Ecclesiastes speaks against the distance between the crime and the punishment, and that if the two are not close, then it becomes a meaningless kind of thing. So, Again, God is up on life and he's up on marriage and he wants to model the ideal in the marriage. If I'm on my third marriage and I'm talking to you about how to have a good marriage, I've lost a lot of credibility. And it's because God knows the pain and the heartache. Many people listening to me today are on second marriages, maybe third. And the pain that you've gone through, if you, Some of you are saying, Pastor, if you could spare the pain that I've gone through or my children have gone through, as the book of Malachi also highlights when 
He says, I, the God of Israel, hate divorce. If you could keep them from some of this pain, please do everything in your power to do so. And um, indeed, I, I, I will. And God wants us to take a, what's a difficult position in our day. Um, but we have to take it. Now, unfortunately, sometimes people uh, apply this standard to other realms. Oh, well, this person can't be a missionary or he can't uh, be an evangelist or he can't be a Sunday school teacher. The only prohibition is the office of elder or deacon, all things being equal. All right. Appreciate that question. Let's go to the next one. I think we have a live caller who's waiting. So let's go there first. We do indeed. Thanks for calling. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Greetings, Pastor Rick. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. All right. My question, well, the scripture references on Matthew chapter 11, verses 23-24, and Romans chapter 9, verses 21. And uh, it relates to God's election and full knowledge, as it relates to salvation. Uh, since I've been a Christian, my views have <laughs> changed and evolved regarding this issue, and I've heard a number of your sermons and teaching on the issue, and I think somewhat I understand where you fall on it. I mean, how you understand the issue. My, but my question is, is given God uh, omniscient that he knows all, the actual, you know, the actual, uh, actual, uh, the actual reality of the past, the present, and the future, yes. what will happen, and for lack of a better word, the potential reality of the past, present, and future, what could have happened but didn't happen. God knows that. But an uh, example would be what, what if my, uh, God knows my life if I'd made different choices in the past, if I'd married someone else, if I went to seminary. He knows what would have happened to my life. So my question relates to uh, God's choice of salvation, whether it was conditional, based on our, his full knowledge of our receiving Christ when we are confronted with the gospel. Now, in Matthew eleven twenty three, it seems to say, and you can correct me on this, and I might be reading this wrong, it seems to say that, can I read it? It's only two verses. Go ahead. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend into Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have repented, remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it would be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. It, those verses seem to, God has seemed to be displaying both kind of knowledge, what actually happened and what could have happened if conditions were different. But as it relates to Capernaum, the conditions were different because he chose the conditions. He, I mean, what, how it relates to the, the Sodom, he chose the condition. He didn't give them as much light or if the miracles had occurred in them, the miracles that occurred in Capernaum, he states that they would have remained to this day. Now, the point I'm trying to make, and as that, in my mind, I'm connecting this to Romans 3.21. I think you understand what I'm saying, that God has a right to choose to make one lot for just honor, one lot for honor, as he chooses. It's his sovereign choice. And I'm trying to understand how, how when you say that his, his choice of us is based on his full knowledge that we would receive him 
if we are confronted with the gospel. Am I correct? Well, you correct me if, I, if I'm mixing up uh, your understanding of uh, how, your teaching of this particular issue. Well, let me just say first that, and, and I appreciate it, and you're, you're thinking and you're wrestling with the scriptures, and I thank God for that because most people aren't doing that today. Um, and stick with me, too, in our study of Romans, because I am going to deal with every twist and turn on the doctrine of election when we come to Romans 9, 10, and 11. Uh, but let me lay that aside for just a second. Here in Matthew chapter 11, where he deals with these you know, three cities around the Sea of Galilee there on the northwest shore, and um, these Phoenician cities, these Gentile cities, uh, Chorizon, Decida, Capernaum. Um, these were cities that had great revelation. Five of the ten miracles performed in Matthew uh, 8 and 9 were done, for instance, in Capernaum. Uh, that's, that's pretty powerful. And so I think when the Lord Jesus said, listen, if the miracles that were done in you were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in sackcloth and ash. I don't think you can argue or reason that um, just because Capernaum had more light or more revelation and that Sodom didn't and therefore um, they were really not as guilty. Well, uh, or I shouldn't say that not as guilty, but that they were um, had less of a chance. Um, the, the fact is, is that they had light and they had enough light to condemn them. And that's the rationale between Romans 1, 18 and 3:20, that there are varying degrees of light. And but there's enough light given to each and every group, whether it's 1, 18 to 32, where he deals with the hardcore pagan who's never seen a written copy of the Bible or never heard the name of Jesus or whether he's dealing with the highly religious Jew who had been entrusted with the oracles of God, the, the, the Holy Scripture. There are varying degrees of revelation. And the point even in Romans, when he deals, for instance, in Romans 2, the first half with the religious man who makes judgments. In his making judgments about other people, he's claiming to have knowledge. And he doesn't live up to the knowledge that he makes uh, that he takes judgment out upon other people, and therefore he's all the more guilty. And so the point there is with increased revelation comes increased accountability. And with increased revelation comes increased accountability. And that's the thrust of Romans 2 when he says, listen, you're storing up. It's the Greek word, uh, you're treasuring up. Jesus told us to lay up treasure in heaven. Some people are laying up treasure in hell. You're treasuring up wrath for the day of wrath uh, because of your lack of response. And I think what's here in in Matthew 11 is you don't want to miss the spirit of the passage. The spirit of the passage is that Jesus is saying, listen, you've had great revelation, Capernaum, fantastic revelation, and you didn't do anything with it. And I, and I think he's he's trying to highlight uh, you know, a reality when he points to Sodom and Gomorrah, but he's not dismissing by any sense their guilt. Uh, sometimes the Lord, some people think that this is a, a, a statement of hyperbole that Jesus is using to make a point, and some interpret it in that way. They may be correct. 
Uh, I would simply say that the thrust of the passage is not so much to make a judgment about Sodom and Gomorrah and the amount of revelation they had and the fairness of God or anything like that, not that you're doing that, as it is to make a statement about the fact that hell is an awful place for anyone who goes there, but it's worse for some people who go there. And for these people who saw miracle after miracle after miracle, who had not just general revelation, but they had specific revelation through the preaching of the Lord Jesus himself and through attesting miracles that came with that preaching, affirming his message as God's messenger, as God's Messiah, and they did nothing with it, that hell will be especially hot. Hell is awful for anyone who goes there, but it's not the same for everyone who goes there. Just like heaven is a great place for anyone who goes there, but it's not the same for every believer who goes there. There's degrees of reward. Jesus spoke of our laying up treasure in heaven and not upon the earth. But in Romans 9, I don't think you can use 921 because I don't think the thrust of that chapter is personal election. And I will try to defend that view very carefully when we come to this in our study of the, the, our study of the epistle to the Romans. 9, 10, and 11 are what we call the national section of Romans. And it's, uh, it's an expression of God's fairness. In, in Romans uh, 1 through 8, you have the doctrinal section where he deals with three key doctrines, and it's a picture of God's righteousness as it's revealed. That God is a righteous God in condemning anyone and everyone in all of humanity because all men have had some light. And man has not lived up to that light. No one can claim ignorance about God because God has shown himself in some way to everyone. So none are innocent. No one can say I'm innocent because I'm ignorant because no one's ignorant because all men have light. It's varying degrees, but they have that light. And in Romans 9 through 11, we come to the national section where God's righteousness is really vindicated. It's defended. It's proved because he ends Romans 8 with nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And a logical question would be, well, then how does that apply to the Jew? Because the prophets repeatedly said that God loved Israel with an everlasting love. Well, if God loved Israel with an everlasting love, it appears that God's abandoned Israel. And uh, and Paul's point is God hasn't abandoned Israel. Romans 9 isn't dealing with personal election. It's dealing with national election. When God says, Jacob, I love Esau, I hate it. When he quotes that in Romans 9, that comes from the prophet Malachi. And he's talking about how God chose the people, the nation of Israel over the Edomites, over the descendants of Esau to be the people from whom the Messiah would come. So 9 deals with their election, 10 with their current rejection, 11 with their future restoration. So... Anyway, I will deal with all of these things like uh, many are called, few are chosen, many of the issues in the Gospels as well as in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Ephesians 1, in Acts, and other places <clears throat> when we come to this section of our study of Romans. Anyway, if you don't have a church to attend this Sunday, I invite you to Community Bible Church. We're doing a verse-by-verse exposition of Romans. We're just in the fifth chapter. This Sunday we'll be dealing with, well, man, isn't it unfair that I was born a sinner? Aren't I getting dumped on for Adam's sin? Come find out. 